0: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with
1: Viator. Your body is unique. So why would you settle for a weight loss plan that's one size fits all? Noom is the weight management program that takes into account your biology to build a custom plan just for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.
2: Welcome to Good One, the show in which a comedian comes on to play a clip of one of their jokes and then discusses how they wrote it and how it fits into what they're trying to do with their comedy. I'm your host, Vulture Senior Editor, Jesse David Fox. Comedy isn't therapy, but it does have a similar ability of reframing challenging experiences and feelings in a way that just feels lighter and more manageable. It also gives people a vocabulary to understand the hard to understand. So, considering, you know, everything... I wanted to rerun this episode from the great stand-up comedian Aparna Nancharla about her joke about anxiety. The funny thing, as sometimes happens on this show, I remember when she started doing this joke. Aparna moved to New York from L.A. in late 2012 to work on Totally Bias with W. Kamal Bell. Around then, I'd see her perform her deeply silly act around Brooklyn. And then I distinctly remember when her material shifted. The, the silliness was still there in parts, but now Aparna was talking about her struggles with depression and anxiety. This episode is about that breakthrough, how her career in comedy is so connected to her history with mental illness, how her comedy isn't as much about anxiety and depression as people think, and, you know, writing good jokes. The joke you're about to hear is from her debut album, Just Putting It Out There, which came out in 2016, the same year she did her Comedy Central half-hour special. In 2018, she did a half-hour special for Netflix's The Stand-Ups. Since this episode came out in August 2018, I just wanted to mention that right now you can currently see Aparna every Monday co-hosting a digital version of my favorite weekly New York stand-up show, Butterboy, with Joe Firestone and Maeve Higgins. So, here is Aparna nonchala.
3: I have a lot of anxiety. Um, it is it's a pretty solid part of my life. Like, and, and how many, any stress heads in the house tonight? Yeah! <laughs> That was a good amount. So usually people are just like, we're scared. But I, I actually find it weirder to not have anxiety than to have it. Cause I feel like if you're not scared, you're not paying attention, you know? If you opened a newspaper today and you skim the headlines, you're just like, seems cool. It's like, what? Everything's on fire. Are you kidding me? And sometimes people are like, oh, well, you know, there's nothing to fear, but fear itself. Uh, have you checked out some of Fear's work? Pretty much churning out the hits since forever, making a lot of great points. If you don't have anxiety, to me, what it feels like is there's like an edgy improv group in your brain that just needs like a one word suggestion to spin like countless scenarios that no one's comfortable with. (laughs) It's like, when will this show be over? I just came to be supportive. But I've had anxiety forever and I I have all kinds of it. Like um, I have social anxiety, which is ironically one of the most relatable kinds. Like sometimes, yeah, it's weird. (laughs) Like sometimes mine will get so bad, I can't even talk to babies without getting self-conscious. Like the whole time, I'm just like, ah, what if I'm not an interesting shape or color, you know? Oh, make a fist, try to relate.
2: <laughs>
3: but yeah, I've had anxiety my whole life and it's gotten to a point where I feel more comfortable with it than without it. And luckily I live in one of the anxiety hotspots of the planet, New York City. Uh, it's like top 10 places to have a panic attack, you know? Like up there i saw i saw an ambulance cut off another ambulance the other day was <laughs> like perfect settings are accurate
2: i am here with the person behind that joke aparna nancharla thank you for joining us
3: thank you for having me
2: before we get into this specific joke yeah. uh, i thought a good place to start would be just sort of give a sort of baseline history of uh your personal history with mental illness? And sort of how did it relate to your pursuit of comedy?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think I was diagnosed with depression in college. And I had taken some time off from school because of uh, issues I was having around eating. And I think I just needed a break. I was kind of stuck in a lot of ways. And uh, yeah, that's so that's when I officially was, and then I went on antidepressants, and it's kind of weird in hindsight because I think that initial boost from going on medication was what gave me the courage to try stand-up because <laughs> I think it was far, far outside my comfort zone as an introvert. But then when I started, I didn't at all talk about it because I almost, it because of the meds and stuff, it wasn't like as as present an issue mm-hmm. for me in terms of struggling with it, so... I think I didn't actually start talking about having like depression and I think the flip side of it was anxiety for me for a long time, but I just didn't have the name for it. Um, And weirdly, I think maybe the anxiety has gotten more exacerbated by being in a career with a lot of uh, stressors. But um, yeah, so then I think maybe a couple years in, I, I had kind of a depressive rut and started writing about depression just because it was the big thing consuming my brain and I was having trouble writing about anything else. And then I think I tried it on stage just because that's all I had written as of recent. And it resonated with people in a way that I wasn't expecting. So I think it encouraged me to explore it more. But I think what kept me back was that i was like well a lot of people you know are already great with talking about mental health like maria bamford or uh mark maron or yeah uh Patton oswalt so i think i didn't know if i had anything necessarily to add to the dialogue so specifically
2: had you had toured with maria at, at that point i know at some point you had opened for her
3: yeah i think i opened for her early on when i started in dc and I think I even remember one night before going on stage being like, I have some jokes about being like a quiet person. Is it OK if I do that? I don't want to step on anything. You're doing. And she's like, do whatever you want. Like, I don't. Yeah. Like, don't worry about it at all. But of course, I was like very in my head about it.
2: Did you see her doing the work she does about that? And I wouldn't say like jealous, but you were like, oh, I'd, you know, what were you feeling about? watching her do that stuff as a person who knows who's dealing with it, who wasn't necessarily talking about it on stage.
3: Yeah, I think it, I was just really inspired by it, but also in that way of like, oh, like she's so on another level, like I can't really touch what she's doing, so why bother, which is a very much like a perfectionist thought. But um, but yeah, I was like she's she's so like good and nuanced at the way she covers it that I don't know that I have anything close to that level of insight.
2: You mentioned, though you're dealing with certain things, you weren't necessarily talking about it. And so I wanted, uh, it might be useful to sort of describe what you were doing. And I believe the first time I ever saw you, which was you just moved to New York. And I think it's said big terrific. Mm-hmm. And I remember just loving how, just loving your act and loving how still you are. And I have this vague memory of a bit where you pretended to be a Muppet,
3: Oh yeah. Oh my joke? gosh. I, yeah, that was like a long time ago. And I don't even, I didn't even remember that I did it in New York. Cause I remember I had moved from LA and I was like, I had done it there and it was so weird and like different, uh, from anything else I was doing that sometimes I was like, I really don't know what to do with this. Like I don't know if I can actually ever record it or put it anywhere. So I think it eventually just got shuffled out, but yeah that 's so funny that what
2: was what was it because I really have what <laughs> did you turn your shirt around? I really yeah, have like
3: yeah, um uh, it was just I had this hat, and then I bought this hair clip that was just like these two big googly eyes got on it. either end, so then when you put it on the hat, it kind of looked like a weird face and then if and then I just like turned around so that like my hair was it was almost like cousin it, i yeah, guess or yeah, yeah. the <laughs> The hair was the rest of the face, but um, yeah, I just sort of like turned around and it looked like a Muppet and it was like a very absurd character called Muppet comic.
2: (laughs) What did you think of your act at that time, you know, before you are doing this stuff, you know, 2012, 2013?
3: Well, even early on, I think I had trouble, like I would write jokes and they would kind of be distinct things, but I always had trouble like... Uh, connecting everything together and having like bigger chunks thematically so I think because I hadn't done an album yet and any sets I had recorded I don't even think I had done a late night set yet so I really wasn't thinking in terms of structure very much so everything felt like these distinct different parts and I wasn't even sure like what The overall takeaway was for the audience or anything like I was like I don't even know what kind of person I'm really coming across as so I think when I started talking about mental health that at least helped me be like okay these are like different aspects of your life or personality that you can kind of bring up in in more like ways that connect together. You
2: mentioned that you started writing about it sort of out of you could literally your brain could not think you were just like I'm writing about this because I'm in this state. Yeah. Do you remember anything of what that material was like the first time you started doing it?
3: Mm, I mean I think even in my joke book, it just looks very much like a journal where it's just like the same circular thought over and over again. I'm just like, what's the point? Like, <laughs> why are we all here? And, uh, and I was like, this is not even funny. And I think maybe I pulled out like one line that I maybe tweeted or something later where it was like, Sometimes I feel sad for no reason, but then I'll remember the reasons. Yeah. And that kind of did well as a tweet. So I was like, oh, maybe that that's something I could like flesh out on stage. So I think that was actually the initial little nugget that turned into a bigger thing. For yeah. yeah. I think
2: that that way of phrasing it is in this anxiety joke as well, which is yeah. like, oh, I don't know why I'd be anxious other than like the reasons – obviously that one yeah, yeah 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 <laughs> this version where now we're now or do you remember how this started the anxiety
3: yeah chunk. i think um how did the anxiety chunk start i think it was and it's weird now because it is i have that line about opening a newspaper and it's like the net na- the news has gotten so cartoonish <laughs> yeah. that like the fact that this was in like 2015 or whenever i recorded 2016 i like it se- now it seems even more insane to be like yeah like no one can read the news sure. now and not be anxious like you don't like it, you don't even have to have anxiety to really relate to it but maybe it was the first time i really started struggling with like performing on stage and like my anxiety was so bad that i was like maybe i'll just like talk about being anxious and maybe even if it won't be in the exact context of like being that uncomfortable on stage, like at least as a broader theme, maybe people will relate to it.
2: I mean, it felt like the, the core is, I actually find it weirder not to have anxiety than to have yeah. it, Yeah. which, I, and I think it's a thing that I, at least I know from even talking to my own therapist, which is sort of like the, ex- lots of people have thoughts yeah. and these things are possible, right? Yeah. Like you can be hit by a bus. That's definitely possible. The thing is most right. people are able to not keep on thinking about it. Yeah.
3: <laughs> And it's also like, uh, to me, it feels like that thing where like, if you live in New York City, it is like being hit by a bus or something could just be like one little thing that happened in your day. Like it's not even that far outside the realm of possibility. But then I, I guess it feels like there are two types of people like the people who just keep like, thinking about the fact that they could have easily just been hit by a bus that morning. And then the people are like, on to the next thing. And I'm like, I just don't understand how you can move on from that.
2: I do like the idea that you're like, New York City, anything is possible. You're <laughs> right. like, you could hit by a bus. Yeah. And be-.
3: like all oh, the horrible things that could happen. You wouldn't even City bring it up. Yeah, dreams. Yeah.
2: I, I feel like I've heard that you, I would say you have a, a hybrid process of writing both off stage and yeah. on stage. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what that is, what that's like and sort of maybe in the context of a joke like this?
3: Yeah, I mean, even now that I feel like I maybe have less time to write these days or just less time to sit and think about jokes, like I think it does help me, especially when trying out new material, to kind of have at least the beats fleshed out or like what I want to say or the overall structure of what the joke might be. And then maybe on stage I can find like a new line or a new angle or a direction to go in. But I do feel like I need that framework. To think it out yeah. verbally. Yeah.
2: When you say a beat, how much of the joke is, you know, like, are you like, okay, I will say, do you, will you be like, oh, maybe I'll be able to bring up newspapers and then and like people that, are, you know, like, or are you just sort of like, okay, I'll, I have the beat, which is, um, you're more comfortable being, having anxiety. Than
3: yeah. No. And for, for that part, I think it was actually that if you're not scared, you're not paying attention was the first thing I thought of, like that line. And then I sort of fleshed out around it, like, well, what does that mean? Like, does that mean, like, when you read the news or, like, would, like why is that true to you? Like, I think it... I was like, this is so true to me. I guess it's weird to me if you couldn't relate to yeah. this. So then I think the rest of it kind of built around it. But that was... like, I was like, this line feels like it could be, um, like, uh, one of the beats. Yeah. <laughs>
2: well, it's a very, like... It's interesting because it's, like, it's, kind of, it's like wordplay, but not like how we traditionally think of wordplay. It's not right. like a pun as much as like it's a play on a certain sort of saying.
3: Yeah. Or the, yeah, like if you're not mad, you're not paying yeah, attention. I, yeah. I
2: literally try to find it. The earliest example I saw was if you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. Oh, it,
3: right. Okay. But, but it's it is about like injustice. And, yeah, yeah. 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 And I think for me, I was like, I've always, with that expression, I think I've always like had problems expressing anger and like being in touch with my anger. So I'm like, how would that expression, like, how would it translate in my world? And I was like, I think it's fear. It's generally always fear.
2: It's sort of structured like an argument with somebody where you're like, you might say this, but in reality, like, have you checked out fear's work? Yeah. In your head, who's the person that you're arguing with?
3: I don't know if I have a specific person, but I guess it is like someone who doesn't have anxiety, but I feel like now I'm so... (laughs) <laughs> like so many of my friends are comedians now that I'm like, I don't even know if I know someone like that. But um but yeah, I guess in my head it was like, well, let's say not everyone in the audience knows what anxiety is. How would you explain yeah. to them how what it is like what it's like in your brain or why you have trouble not seeing the world that way?
2: You know, there's a version of this joke that that is then four more minutes of a joke or like two a minute more of joke where you're like like completely like and now I'm going to be doing
3: that oh oh (laughs) like a little bit of an act out of what would that yes yes I think I'm not sure why I shortened it because I think that happens a lot where I'll just try it a bunch of different ways and then I'll just end up one of the ways but it won't it won't even necessarily be like oh that wasn't working because I think sometimes it was but I just like was like eh, I don't need this part
2: it's probably also there's more right there's like yes you, it's like keeps there's a rhythm of this thing that if you then like okay I'm now going to do a full improv scene and then I come back right. to make more points yeah
3: and yeah and I feel like there are some comedians where you're like and then they would do the full yeah. improv show and I think I wish I were one of those comedians sometimes because I was like that would be really fun to see but then I'm like eh, I can't think I'll just put in another tweet like thought <laughs>
2: But yeah, it is why the this is a a, a sort of a joke that came later in your, your act, which was the the dropping the pills joke.
3: There is no way to pick up pills that you've spilled on the ground without looking like a total human red flag <laughs> you know there's just no way to be like oh <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is what I meant to do. And- Everything is going great!
2: <laughs> I remember seeing you do that. And I'm like, oh, she figured out how to do an Imparna style act out.
3: 140 character act out.
2: <laughs> Speaking of 140 characters, I have social anxiety, which is ironically one of the most relatable kinds.
3: Yeah, which is, uh, that line is really funny because, I mean, it's funny in the not the, oh, it's hilarious to me, <laughs> but it's like odd in the sense that. I think I said that line just to set up that transition to like talking about a specific kind of anxiety. And that always gets a big laugh. And I don't even think I meant it to be funny when I first said it. And then I was like, I guess this is a joke because people really (laughs) seem to think it's funny. But I even now I'm just like, I still don't see why that's that funny.
2: Uh, Was the baby thing come out of a real experience? The being nervous that babies don't like you.
3: Yeah, I think that that happens a lot where it's like when babies or or dogs don't like me, I'm like, oh, they can see my true bad self. So I think I was like, how do I write a joke about that? And then I was like, well, it's kind of funny if like small talk, like you're so nervous about small talk, you can't even talk to like someone who doesn't have language without getting scared. I had that joke actually early on, like way early in stand up, maybe like two or three years in and then. I didn't really know what to do with it. And then when I started talking about anxiety, I was like, oh, this would actually make sense to work back in. so I think just having that setup of like, oh, I'm an anxious person, it helped transition to kind of this more absurdist bit.
2: So to use the sort of the big end, which is I saw an ambulance cut off another ambulance the other day. Is that one thing you saw? And is that a thing you would probably write? Where you're like, what is an example of the most New York version of anxiety?
3: I think I actually did see that, and then I was like, oh, that's kind of a perfect encapsulation of, like, how much chaos there is here. Yeah. Where it's, like, even someone trying to help someone is, like, being an asshole.
2: So you you have an amount that you sort of hear the beats and you talk it out. I mean, this, I imagine, is a joke you had for a while. How How is your process sort of of tinkering? Are you sort of listening back? Are you, like, constantly playing with stuff
3: i do listen back but ironically it's like less to tinker i mean it is i find listening back very helpful if i said something that i don't remember that was new or like if i'm trying a new bit to get the wording right but um in general i think i mainly record sets because i found like when i have bad stage fright like Listening to an old set I did will mm-hmm. remind me that, like, oh, you've done this before. And it weirdly, like, helps me feel <laughs> more calm. But, yeah, yeah so it's almost just, like, to be, like, it's almost like a memento <laughs> style thing of, like, no, remember, you are a comedian.
2: Because I, I think I, I've heard you talk about you you really, like, getting to the point where you're, like, this joke is now a thing. Yeah. And then keeping on doing it is the harder part. What, what, what motivates you to keep on sort of building on a thing?
3: I think I have trouble really with the uh, joke ever being done. And I know there are people who like can tinker with the joke forever. And it's not like I'm like, you know, moving commas around. Like I'm not that uh, meticulous, but I am like, I'll like, especially when I'm touring, I feel like the joke will like, at the end of like a year, it'll sound like different than it did at the beginning of the yeah. year. Just, I guess, cause you have to keep it interesting for yourself too. And you feel like the more you tell it, like you find new things about it or you're like, oh, this part actually doesn't feel like it applies to me anymore. Or like, I need to explain this better. But like, even after I record stuff, like if I keep doing it, it'll just keep changing.
2: Case in point, you did this joke also on your half hour, which was, I think, probably recorded about a year later.
3: Later, yeah.
2: So now I'm going to tell you what changed.
3: Ooh. <laughs> I
2: just happened to rent out. Instead of saying... Any stress heads in the audience? You say I have a lot of anxiety, which don't be mistaken by this sexy drag queen stage persona.
3: Oh, interesting. I don't even remember if I added that. I don't even remember adding that line there. And now I feel like I use that line in a different joke I've been doing about uh, being an introvert. Yeah. So that's so interesting. I have no memory of this.
2: (laughs) So the newspaper joke, you added another tag, which was even the newspaper's on fire.
3: Oh, yes. Yeah.
2: Was that just sort of your like they're laughing so we just keep on riffing and then
3: i think so i think it was funny to me to be like reading a newspaper and like the news is really alarming and then you're like even like it's so alarming like even the papers on fire like everything is so chaotic <laughs> yeah. that like even people reading newspapers they're on fire
2: and the other big change was um after the improv thing you say when will the show be over i just can't be supportive and then you add none of these thoughts have a future
3: Oh, yeah. I think that was almost like a little button yeah. line.
2: It may, I mean, that also makes sense of like you were there watching it. It is, as we were talking about, that you don't act it out, that you placed yourself in the audience of your own thoughts. Yes,
3: yes, yes, yes. And also like it's kind of a dig at improvisers, which I didn't mean it to be, but I was like if we're really going to see this analogy through, you got to cap it.
2: The improv part of the joke made me think about how you came up in a time as a comedian – uh, who can essentially avoid, like, club, comedy club. Mm-hmm. And there's a certain sort of criticism that came up with that. That generation of comedians came up, and then there's a generation of older comedians who are mad at them. Yes. Who are like, you can't be a comedian if your scene's too supportive or whatever. Right. And I think that's, I, there's lots of very good comedians. I'm like, I think the that supportiveness allows for a lot of things. But, you know, what is your response to that? Criticism.
3: Yeah, it's interesting because I, and you know, I might have uh, my own chip on my shoulder or like preconceptions about clubs, but I do feel in general like I've found it easier to grow and try things outside of the clubs. And when I've done the clubs, I felt like I've had to stick to more like kind of like straightforward, cut and dry mm-hmm. jokes. And even like doing headlining sets and like touring, like sometimes I would feel like when I, did the mental health stuff, people would like, kind of like, shut down a little bit, not everywhere, like there would always be exceptions um, to that. But for in general, it seemed like they didn't want something outside of what the idea of like, club comedy is. So in that sense, I was kind of like, well, I feel like I've tried doing these rooms and if it's like, if I'm not enjoying them as much, and if the audience isn't enjoying it as much, then like, who is this for? Yeah. You know, like, if I'm just trying to impress some like internalized old comedy guy in my yeah. head, like, that feels like not worth it at the end of the day.
2: That is a much smaller audience than the audience that yeah. is actually. Exactly.
3: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I think it's yeah. different like when you get to a place where like it's like you're filling out clubs and the, everyone there knows who you are and they know what they're getting but I think if you're still at a point where you're like building an audience you're still going to like clubs still have a higher factor of like random people who are just there to be like I'm at a club I'm mm-hmm. going to see comedy I don't know what I'm going to see necessarily um but I have an idea of what the type of comedy I want to see like I think that's when there's like more of a disconnect between the performer and the audience's expectations.
2: You mentioned that, especially sort of as you were touring, there would be some people that you can feel a tightening up or something about when you were talking about this mm-hmm. stuff. How did it? I guess in general, how did it feel both when that happens because it is a more personal material when yeah. you you're backing they're backing away and it's more about you in that regard.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And in general, how did it feel the opposite, like when people did like it more?
3: Yeah, because I always I think I always am assume like when audiences are quiet it's like not funny and sometimes that is the case but then I also realize sometimes when you do more personal stuff they're quiet because they just are like are we allowed to laugh like should we be laughing at this we don't know um so I forget that too that sometimes because I do a lot of self-deprecating stuff and I think sometimes people see like a small woman doing that and they're like oh that's sad (laughs) I'm like no it's not sad (gasps)
2: It's like I did this on purpose.
3: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think it is that that fine line of like, "Oh, but it's okay, you guys, I'm fine."
2: And then on the other side, how did it feel when people like really liked it?
3: I think it was very rewarding and I think it was also um or like comforting and and like cool to see people relating to it in that I was like, "Oh, wow, it's it's neat that I'm not the only one who feels this way, but also like I feel like I would get emails of that were just like so heartfelt of people being like I've been struggling with this and it was just so nice to hear someone talk about it and it, and it's like you, oh you just like heard me string three tweets together and it made you feel better and that's like crazy and I feel really grateful for that.
2: You mentioned being uh, it maybe uh, not thinking you should do it partly because other people have done it so well mm-hmm. now that. You've done it, especially at the time, did you feel like, oh, there is a space for me to do it?
3: I think so. I mean, sometimes people have been like, oh, like, you know, it, in the external sense, they've been like, oh, well, it's also just nice to see a woman of color talking about comedy. And that's like something that isn't always explored in like the minority community, like mental health or like the immigrant community. Mm-hmm. It can be like a a more sti- stigmatized topic. So I think in that sense, I'm like, oh, I guess it is like a new Thing in, in some sense uh i've heard like so many more comedians talk about mental health now and it, it does feel weird to just be like oh that's my hook like <laughs> you can't use it like i'm like that if it's part of your life it's part of your life you gotta talk about it
2: what did this joke sort of mean for your stand-up like was it a breakthrough sort of what then what did it then carry you to keep on doing
3: it Was I mean it was a breakthrough in me for a way to like be more personal on stage and more vulnerable um I think I still do keep a level of distance like because I think everyone like Nanette recently came mm-hmm. out and I feel like it has gotten a lot of people talking about the difference between you know being vulnerable and being sort of the butt of your own joke um, so I do think I still have this level of distance between my material and like my rawest emotions, but I think it did breach the the topic of like, oh, there's a lot of like dark stuff in my head and, and maybe it's okay to talk about that.
2: Yeah. yeah. You mentioned Annette and it's funny because when I saw it, I um, ran into all the people like associate, like the Team Butterboy, the show that you host on? Oh, yeah. Because I was there and uh, Marianne Ways was there and Joe Firestone was there and Maeve was there.
3: Because I sent out, like, as soon as I saw it, I, like, sent out this email that I was like, guys, I never brag about stuff, but you all have to go see this show. And then they listened to me.
2: What, why? What made you, as a person who is a comedian, emailing people who see comedy all the time, what is it that you felt you wanted to,
3: I think it, it just I love deconstructionism in general and I think it just deconstructs what is comedy in like a really compelling way and kind of looks at the like if an audience member is uncomfortable at a joke or something like what where does that come from or like why what is in the structure that makes jokes like sometimes dissatisfying in yeah. terms of addressing issues and i feel like i've been getting the question a lot as a lot of comedians have since the political climate has gotten so charged about do you think comedy can like solve social issues and like do you think comedians are like vital in this environment and it's like yes like i think we're important in that we can speak truth to power but i think i think it's gotten sometimes a little too extreme where it's almost like comedians are the new like (laughs) policymakers and it's like i don't think that was ever our role um but i but also it's like what are the limitations of comedy in that sense yeah yeah
2: one more uh, one other thing i think about with net is one of the things that it directly attacks or sort of goes after is this idea that mental illness is directly correlated with creativity. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think comedi- comedy has this very specific version of the narrative of like these sad clowns yes. that, that are like, oh, all comedians are depressed. Um, right. Which I think is uh, not, <laughs> can't be, one is not correct, and also just sort of comedians talk about their lives more than, right. it'd be like if every cop had to talk about their life, you'd be like, but sort of yeah. what, <laughs> what is your feeling about that convention?
3: I think, I mean, I do think there is a way of seeing the world that a lot of comedians share in terms of constantly questioning everything and turning everything around and being like, well, why is it this way? And it's like, what is the goal here? And I think that does run into like some depressive modes of thinking of like constantly being like, well, I don't understand like what the end game is, but yeah. So I think in that sense, it is just this mindset where you're not taking things for face value. And I mean, a weird that I majored in psychology in college and I always, one of the things that always stuck with me that I learned early on was that like depressives are essentially just realists and mm-hmm. people who are happy are essentially slightly delusional. So you have to be slightly delusional to be happy. Yeah, And so in that sense, I mean, you could use that to justify that like the world really is a grim place and i mean there is an element of randomness to it but i think yeah in that sense comedians are just like they they don't want to like sugarcoat or like yeah rose colored glasses things because they want to get at like the heart of of like human behavior or, like why things work the way they do
2: uh we'll be back with more parna Charla after this word from our sponsor <laughs> We are back with Aparna. Then, and uh, the time of this joke, and even now, you don't necessarily talk exclusively about mental illness. It sort of tends to be either at the beginning or just like a a little part. Mm -hmm. How do you think it sort of frames the rest of your act and how people perceive you?
3: I've had that same thought where I'm like, it's not like it is the overall arching theme of my set it'll be like something I touch on but then I kind of talk about other things but maybe having that filter maybe colors the rest of my material I'm not sure because I feel like maybe as an audience member it's very much a different experience than me because to me it does just in that like during my set I'm like generally anxious a lot of the time or like negative about it afterwards but yeah, I don't know if I, like, keep mentioning that if I'm doing, like, a long set. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Do you, how do you, it is a thing that preparing for this interview, I'm like, people really, like, every headline you you've of every interview with you, with mm-hmm. like, depression.
3: That also has been weird to me sometimes where I'm like, that's not the only thing I talk about, but I guess people like to, like, pin a thing on you and be like, this is something new, and <laughs> that's what you'll get from her. <laughs>
2: yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's maybe it is as you're talking about before. Before these jokes, you sort of didn't have a collective, like, oh, this is the person. Mm-hmm. And so, though all your jokes are not about anxiety or depression, the rest of the jokes are like, oh, these are the jokes of a person with anxiety and depression. Yeah. Because I think there's, you had older jokes that when you re listen to, you're like, uh,
3: you no, know, I have a lot of opinions about food. For example, don't don't you think that any pizza can be a personal one if you cry while you eat it? <laughs>
2: And that joke oh, is like, "Oh, that's just funny. whatever right. But now you're like, oh, if you' that joke in this context,
3: right. it's different. It's like a different experience. And I think there's always there always has been a vein of like existentialism through most of my material of like sort of questioning the why of it all. Yeah, yeah.
2: I talk a lot to comedians about persona and how often it feels like, at first you're sort of trying to make the person on stage who you are off stage. It Mm -hmm. becomes a thing where the person you are in real life becomes more like the person you are on stage and becomes this weird middle ground. You aren't shy about being shy Mm -hmm. or introverted. What does that mean for you?
3: It's been interesting because I think I've gotten more introverted as I've gotten older, but I think it's interesting because I started as an introverted kid and then I think a lot of times when you're kind of a more reserved kid, like everyone's like, oh, you got to come out of your shell. And then you think it's like something you have to get over. And, you know, to a degree, you do have to like put yourself out there to like make it in the world. But, but I think the older I've gotten, I'm like, oh, but it's also okay to not be the most outgoing person. Mm-hmm. So I think I've doubled down on some aspects of my <laughs> sure. personality. And I think talking about it on stage feels good good because i'm just like this is something that i don't feel like i have to apologize or or hide as much anymore but it is interesting and in, as a performer audience dynamic because i do feel like after shows people will sometimes be like i just wanted to say like your sepa i'll leave you alone because i know you're an introvert and then i'm like oh well now it's made it awkward yeah. for everyone but
2: i guess you could like, be like thank you yeah thank you for yeah. appreciating me this time yeah yeah you know considering that doing comedy has been so linked to your, to your mental health in so much as you feel like you started it partly because of like a certain surge of energy and um, has been doing this material and keep on doing this material sort of helped in however you define help.
3: I'm not sure. Like sometimes I think it's made it worse and then other times I think it's helped other people and then, but then other times I'm like, I think it's helped me in my own writing in terms of like what I'm interested in talking about. I don't know if it's helped with the actual issues. I feel I do feel like maybe those are more of an internal thing mm-hmm. and like a thing where you have to kind of, you know, either go to therapy or, or get medication or like find yeah, like I don't I don't think that performing standup has necessarily like solved anything for me in that sense like of my own mental illness and
2: how much sort of do you get out of you know like I feel like talking to Maria Bamford she very much was like I'm going to destigmatize talking about mental illness on stage yes her very much was goal-oriented of like there's how how much do you feel a responsibility or satisfaction from this is for the audience
3: I think I agree with her idea of like I also think she is goal oriented in that way, but also talks about in a way where it's just like, this is a part of who I am and I'm not going to be like, oh, now I'm going to talk about mental illness and it's going to be weird. Like it's just another aspect of your experience. Like, and I think that is the good thing now about having like different, more people from diverse life experiences on stage because then you realize that, like, everyone's normal is, like, so vastly yeah. different. Um, but at the same time, like, you're like, oh, but then I might very much relate to a straight white male talking about, like, the same seat yeah. or something. Yeah.
2: I was thinking about uh, Bo, Bur- Bo Burnham has a line from his the last special that I did where mm-hmm. he's, he's, he talks about giving the audience something you can't give yourself. And I feel like I've heard a lot of comedians, especially young comedians, feel like, because they feel like their struggles are for the audience, it almost arrests their development in a lot of ways. Hmm. Do you feel like that it can let you off the hook in some ways? The Sort of like, oh, my anxieties are now a thing that is for other people. You know, like, do you feel like they're... As, as we were talking about how it might not have helped, do you feel like maybe it's even hurt?
3: Oh, right. Um, sometimes, I mean, I do think... Sometimes like I think about like not doing stand up and then I'm like, oh, but you're talking about these things that are helping people. So it seems like or at least helping some people. So I think it's valuable to keep talking about them. But but yeah, in that sense, it is kind of like is stand up more for the performer, or for the audience. And I think I sometimes get stuck in that paradox.
2: What would it mean to you if someone said you were their favorite comedian?
3: It's hard for me to not immediately be like, well, you're wrong. <laughs> like you need to see you need to watch more comedy. but um, I think it's very like humbling because it is like, oh man, you like listen to just like the way I see the world and it like you know you you were open to it and that's and it resonated with you and that's like very cool to hear.
2: This joke sort of has a sequel.
3: Yeah, I am someone who has a lot of anxiety, and it is weird that anxiety is finally on message. Like, if you're an anxious person, it's kind of like, well, you know, this is what we trained for. Like This is this is our Olympics. It's like all those nights awake, like, it's showtime, you know? Yeah, yeah. Because I did feel like after, like, right after the election, there was this, like, it almost felt like everyone was suddenly like depressed and anxious and I was like okay like it, it I I mean I heard some other comedians who who deal with it also talking about a version of this premise but it was like it was kind of like that thing where they all like a bunch of people moved into our neighborhood <laughs> after the election and it was like it had become gentrified like yeah. mental illness had become gentrified But yeah, it was just so odd because and it did feel like that joke really like struck a chord with people, um, especially right after the election still uh, now. But but yeah, I think everyone was like panicking.
2: Now that the audience is now coming to you more like now there's Mm -hmm. now more. Have you felt a shift? Has has it made you, you know, how have you changed your comedy to adjust for that fact?
3: I have noticed that sometimes like if I start to talk about mental health like people will be more receptive cuz either they know it, it it's something to expect from me or um yeah I think maybe they heard me on something where it was like they were like oh this is someone who might talk about these things but yeah in in the in the broader sense I think I it has made me a little bit more self-conscious about like making sure I'm like doing a great job and like but but I I get like a little bit also worried about being like well you don't talk about these things just because people are like oh she's the person who talks about these things like make sure it's still like what you want to be talking about
2: yeah make sure that it's still true to you yeah and or and I think or is interesting to you Mm -hmm. because it could be Like, yes, I still have these issues, but I am bored by them creatively.
3: Yeah, because it feels like I started talking about them as a way to kind of give them air. And it's like if they're if they've sucked all the air out of the room, that's the other extreme. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, Right after the election, you wrote a piece for The Village Voice, urging comedians not to sort of settle for easy Trump jokes, uh, to do something with their position, with their voice. And... I think the nature of the type of comedian you are, especially on stage, I think I think Twitter has allowed you to do a more um, a different type of comedy. Mm-hmm. But on stage, especially as a person who I think works sort of inside out, you sort of start yes. with how 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 do you do that? How has it been?
3: For a while, I was doing like more overtly political stuff, and now even now, just like personally, I feel like I've become a little bit like burnt out on talking about politics or it feels like maybe it's just like that thing of like, well, you're preaching to the choir, like your own bubble. So it's not even moving the needle on anything, but yeah. So in that sense, I think I've been trying to use my platform more online where I can maybe like spread information about like helping causes or something. But I'm like, I don't know if like jokes are necessarily Doing anything for me concretely anymore, or for the audience.
2: As a person who sees a lot of comedy, it is a thing of you, you can feel an audience both be like, "Well, when's someone going to bring it up?" And no one, it feels like no one yeah. wants it. We're just like, "Yeah, yeah but this is the, it happened." And what are right. we going to not talk right. about? It is, yeah. I mean, it's just sort of a terrible uh paradox of like, no one wants it, but if, if we don't bring it up, that's also bad.
3: Yeah, and it's or even like the White House correspondence Dinner where it felt like that turned into just like turned into an outrage circus over like a set that wasn't that you know extreme or inflammatory um i think it it also kind of feels like well if they're just going to use this now as like a distraction from like actually dealing with issues then that makes me want to talk about it even less because it's like I don't want to give them more attention of any kind. Yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. You're like, well, now they have like figured out a way of turning whatever weapon there is, of speaking truth, yeah. to against,
3: yeah, <laughs> so. or just like using it to to stall more.
2: Yeah, and I think it's playing upon a certain amount of anxiety of like here's a. Th- it's the same thing like you talked about with the improv community. Like the suggestion is now yeah. this person said a joke, and you're like, well, yes. and then we're just spiraling, yes. spiraling, yes. So you recently shared on social media that you had to uh, cancel a tour because you have a new exciting project that you can mm-hmm. announce later. You, you said that you can't talk about what the project is, but it's very exciting. I have theories, but we're not going to get into it because I don't want to get you in trouble. Listening to your interviews over the year, you always sort of, under for a comedian, underplayed a certain desire of like, I want a thing and it's going to be mine. and I'm going to love it. Can you just sort of talk about not sort of what it is, but like what, ex- what is exciting for you about it?
3: It's, it's so fun. I've I've never like made a big announcement and withheld information before, and it's just been fascinating to me, like people's reactions to it. Because I'm like, your whatever people are projecting onto what it yeah. is is so much more exciting than it it could ever be. Sure. <laughs> but um, the thing that's exciting to me about it is weirdly that it does actually um one of the things that drew me to the project was that the there is an opportunity to, like, talk about mental health and oh, cool. um, tell the stories of of those kinds of experiences. So I think that was a big thing that drew me to it. And, um, yeah, I think bringing those stories to light.
2: So I was listening to your mental illness happy hour episode, mm-hmm. and you said you uh, one of your fears is never being taken seriously as an artist. Uh, what does it mean to you to be? I mean, I literally just took you seriously as an artist for an hour, but also to get opportunities where they were like, we don't need to, it's not like we need a comedian, but like we want a partner for these things.
3: That's kind of wild. Cause I did that interview a couple years ago. I don't even remember what year I did it, but I'm, I don't even know if I still have that fear because I just, I don't know. Ever, like be after being in the industry more, I am like a lot of stuff is outside your control and really the only things you can control to a degree are stuff you create for yourself or like things you work on with friends. So, Mm -hmm. and even then it's like, you might not get the funding or it might fall through because of schedule. Like there's so much outside of your control that really, I think my new kind of ethos is just to do what makes you happy because and happy in, in the uh, broad sense of, like, what you find satisfying or worthwhile um, because I think in that sense it will reflect, like, who you are as an artist versus, like, um, we were talking before where it's like, well, this is what people expect from you. So yeah. just keep doing more of that.
2: A similar question is you used to start sets by going, I know I'm surprised that I'm, I'm a comedian mm-hmm. too. Uh, are you still surprised you're a comedian?
3: I don't think so. I think I would, I mean, I am, but I think I'm generally in the more broader sense, surprised that I am a person at all. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: So that sound means it's time for the laughing round. So it's oh. like a lightning round, but because it's comedy, it's laughing round. Got it. Faster questions, not about mental illness. <laughs> this is a, a game called uh, Explain an Obvious Joke. I'm going to okay. give you two of your joke. I'll, I'll give you two options of jokes of yours okay. where you can say they're, they're pretty short and then explain them as thoroughly as you want to. So okay. the here, two options. One is uh, the two DJs fighting joke. Mm-hmm. Or do you want to explain, uh, you, I just came back from Burning Man.
3: Oh, I can do the Burning Man one?
2: All right, so say the joke and then explain why it's funny.
3: So the joke is I just, is it I flew?
2: I just came back from Burning Man. I just
3: came back from Burning Man and boy are my arms spiders. <laughs> and as a play on the joke, I just flew in from Blake City and boy mm-hmm. are my arms tired. But it's Burning Man, so everyone's on drugs. So your arms have, are spiders <laughs> in your brain based on hallucinogens oh all
2: right <laughs> when i say weekend and bernie's what is the scene that you remember
3: oh man i
2: work see so again weekend at bernie's too, which i yeah
3: like, <laughs> i was like i think i've only seen the sequel um i think that i imagine them bring, bringing like the two main guys bringing him mm-hmm. into like a Job, not a job interview maybe like where he works or like a restaurant and he has his glasses on sunglasses on and they like prop him up that is all i remember <laughs> from the movie
2: if you could steal another comedian's joke where it's not like you're stealing it but it's like the joke is yours forever like it's sort of a alternate reality where that joke was in your brain first and oh. so you're not gonna get in trouble it's now just your joke is there a joke that you wish you could have And what is the joke?
3: I think it would probably be like, and I don't even know if I have a a specific one. There's one that Greg Johnson does about his dog, about people messing up dog genders. That really makes me laugh. I wonder, do I even know it off the top of my head? People get so offended when you mess, mess up a dog's gender where you're like, oh my gosh, is this your dog? He's so cute. And they're like, Actually, it's a she, and her name is Jeremy. (laughs) It's so silly, but it's so funny.
2: Do you have a favorite joke joke, like a street joke?
3: A street joke. I probably do. Oh, wait, I do have a street joke. It's so dumb. It's like from a kid's joke book, but I, I think... I don't know why it really got me early on, and I still think it's funny, but what... Did, what did you call Batman and Robin when they were run over by a car? What? Flatman and Ribbon.
2: <laughs> That's usually not how those jokes work. Oh. I know, I like you it. You like it's a like, dirty... No, no, I, no, no, I mean meant... like usually I feel like a joke like that, it's a more surprising oh. than just sort of like, now we have a, a pun based on the names.
3: I think I was just so impressed that they got both of them so good
2: so now it's a game called uh, let's write a tweet mm-hmm. if you're willing uh can you take out your phone and yeah. write a tweet you do not have to publish it but if you do that will be nice
3: i can see if there are any drafts
2: sure <laughs> this is a game called what's in your twitter drafts
3: oh no <laughs> none of these are good <laughs>
2: that's fine the game is the game you have to read one <laughs> That's why they're in the dress. If they're if they're good, they are. Okay, already here's
3: would. one I wrote on an airplane that is still. I think I'm like I'll figure it out, but I don't think I will. Um, I just wrote my favorite part of the airline safety video is breathe normally. Okay, sure. If you want, I'll post it, but I don't know if it makes sense.
2: I think it makes sense. Really? I laughed. Well, you can tweet, and if people don't like it, you can blame me.
3: I would never blame you.
2: This can be the last one. Do you have a, a joke that never worked that you love and you kept on trying but it just sort of never worked? But you will uh go to your grave thinking it's funny.
3: I have one, but I don't even think I can remember all of it. But I can try to explain it. It sure. was a I don't get the expression wrap my head around something. And then it was and then the attempt at the joke was, What am I? Or like, what is my brain? Uh sarong? What is my brain? Uh Second example, what is my brain? uh, Third example, and the third example really made me laugh, but I don't think the entire joke made anyone laugh. What
2: was the third example?
3: Uh, It was, I mean, to not remember it is really- You're
2: like, I know there's a third example. Not
3: making this a good story, but I don't remember the last example. But I mean, I really might be so inspired to bring it back. (laughs) If I can locate it- What am I, a brainy sarong? What am I, uh... uh, (laughs) It was just things that wrap around... (laughs) Guys, you have to believe me.
2: The end!
3: The end!
2: That's it for another episode of Good One. You can listen to Just Putting It Out There wherever you stream music. You can watch her episode of The Stand-Ups on Netflix and her episode of The Half Hour on the Comedy Central app. Follow Parna on Twitter at AparNapkin. Good One is produced by myself, Jelani Carter, Art Chung, and Camila Salazar. Gautam Shrikashin did our theme song. The original episode was produced by Mike Comtate with additional production help from Marika Brownlee. Write a review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. Email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to GoodOnePodcast at gmail.com or tweet at us at GoodOnePodcast. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. We'll be back next week with Patton Oswald. Have a good one.
1: Why do you run?